continuing on in Exodus, and uh, we have uh, six main things. This is an interesting, uh, interesting segment here uh, for Exodus. It's Exodus 5 through the first half of chapter 7, and I call this the battle begins, <coughs> and you're going to watch uh, Moses as he arrives in Egypt, and you see how this whole dialogue uh, takes off. And I wrote down, have you ever watched the pre-boxing press conference with two fighters? I don't ever see the fight because you have to pay for it. I'm not going to, but I can see the press release. Have you ever watched those guys give a press release? What do you always feel like is going to happen? In about two? Yes, exactly. There's tension, right? And I don't know if they're making it up or if it's real, whether fabricated or real tension. But whenever I see it, I'm thinking, how do they keep those two guys from going at each other right then? And I want to, if you've ever seen that, <coughs> I want you to think of that tension. Uh, you can think of two sports teams that don't like each other. And when they come in their arena, how that you can almost, it's, it's almost like you can taste it, right? The fact that they're geared up to go against each other. Well, as we continue walking through Exodus into this portion, you can basically feel that tension like you would at that press conference or going into your rival stadium, what that feels like, because we're going to watch both, I say characters, if you're going to break it out that way, set up the battle stance. Now, what's interesting is, unlike a boxing com uh, a competition where they're typically equally matched or close to equally matched, we're going to watch Pharaoh compete against God, and we're going to watch Pharaoh in these chapters be a bit petty and be a bit uh, premature in his attacks. Um, but what we're going to see is the tension that's building and in all honesty, this is kind of what's been building in Exodus. This is where we've been coming to uh, the whole time. Uh, God is there, and, and like I said, God against Pharaoh. And when we think that, we say to ourselves, well, Pharaoh doesn't have a chance, right? There's no way any human can resist God. God is infinitely more powerful than a human. Here's a sad reality, though. Pharaoh thought the opposite. He didn't think God that was speaking through Moses and Aaron was anything to think about or worry about, but instead could not imagine anything being more powerful than him, that he was a God, that he was there to fight. And here's the interesting thing. He is going to hold the true God in contempt, and we're seeing the stage being set for God to just wipe out any thought from Egypt and, and think of them as a world power. Uh, there are other kingdoms that are north that are pressing down, so it's not like they're the only power in the world, but Egypt would be considered a world power, a substantial power, a threat to all those around them, and he is sitting on the throne as a god. He is considered a god, a descendant of Ra, the sun god. He controls more than just people. Uh, they think that Around his well-being is the climate and the weather and the, and the way things work and how well your cattle breed. He's giving credit for a lot of things. His human response to thus saith the Lord God of Israel, chapter 5, verse 1, <coughs> and I don't want you to miss this, go to 513, and what did the Egyptian uh, taskmasters say to the foreman that they're beating? Thus saith Pharaoh. So you're going to get a thus saith the Lord God, and, and that should sound familiar. If you ever read through the prophets, how do they start anything they say? Thus saith the Lord. Moses and Aaron, and Moses is representing God, and he's speaking the words of God. So this is not Moses' interpreted message. 
This is not a sermon from Moses. This is Moses acting as really the first prophet with thus saith the Lord. And Pharaoh is so arrogant, he says, thus saith me. And his immediate question to Moses and Aaron summarizes our whole world's response to God. Verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And take a second to think with me, is that not the way our world thinks? Who is God that I should listen to him? Why should I listen to the rules in the Bible? Why should I listen to what your God says? Why should I believe that your truth is real truth? Why do you have an absolute truth? Why do you think what you believe is better than what I believe? Right? Go through the whole list. It's that same response. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That is what the world screams back. What you're going to see in Pharaoh is us, our society, our arrogance, our pushback. Think of our um, <coughs> educated elites. Think about all, and if you haven't read about it, and I'm sure you could if you open up an article, you go to the academic world and you get professors in isolation who get state money and get tenured at a university and they can just think as crazy thoughts that they can think and they can go off on a tangent and they think they are above God. You go to the richest person in the world and, and I even watched the uh, Babylon Bee do the uh, interview with Elon Musk and it was a big win for them. But as I listened to Elon Musk talk about things of the Lord and I saw the, the sneer that kind of comes in, he, he pressed it down, but he had it. And I'm not an anti-Elon Musk. I'm just saying you can watch the richest guy in the world, or I don't know if he's the richest guy in the world, but he's really rich. Um, and, and you hear him talk and how he, he likes the morals of the Bible, but he kind of mocks the story of Noah and he mocks the redemptive plan, and he mocks the submission to God. Why? Because he feels like Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that he should obey his voice? Why should I listen? But we're, we're coming in, and we're watching a slave people with, let's be honest, an old guy and another old guy coming in. No slant on anyone over 80. You're super wise, and God used you. I just want you to know that, all right? He didn't use the young bucks. He took the 80-year-olds and said, they're the only ones I can trust to handle this. So if you're over 80... You're Moses, either one. Um, and so the battle begins, and that's what this is. This is the start of the fight. Moses has arrived from the desert. He comes commissioned by the Almighty God with a confirmation from the nation of Israel. How did we end last week? The people believed, this is 4 verse 31, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. By the way, the next two chapters, they're going to disappoint because they bowed their heads in worship when they heard that God was on their side because they expected God to work on their timetable. And when he doesn't work on their timetable, they stop believing. And actually, you don't see after this chapter until they're leaving where Moses includes them. He just goes on and does what God says to him. They bring crushing disappointment to Moses. Now, Moses doesn't come off as the most fortified man in this. I mean, it seems like any resistance, he's crumbling. His confidence goes. Uh, some of it is a growth that needs to take place. He needs to, to be stronger in the Lord. Some of it is a dependence. And so he's not relying on himself at all. But you're going to watch Israel change through these chapters, but you're going to watch Moses be sent forward in the face of absolute no one supporting him, except him and Aaron going up. But right now, as he walks into Pharaoh, the first time, God has sent him from Midian 
40 years ago. God has spoken to him from a burning, not burning bush. God has almost killed them, and he realized you need to obey God. He showed up, and the nation of Israel is all happy to see him. What quickly happens and what we're going to see is that that timetable, though, undermines Israel's confidence and Moses' confidence. No things will unfold. Um, on, things only unfold as God orchestrates them, as God wills to bring him glory and to show him to the nations. So I want you to keep that in mind. We're going to watch people struggle with God's timetable. That's two chapters worth of that. And here's the connection I want you to make. Have you ever felt confident in what the God's going to do? You've, you've had a time of prayer. You've been in a prayer group. You feel that God's going to work. And when things don't unfold as you thought, how quickly does our confidence just get bottom out? And we're saying, why God? The minute things don't happen on our timetable. Well, that's what we're about to watch. But all of these go with different addresses and connections. So Moses and Aaron address Pharaoh. That's chapter five. I'm going to read one through four. Whenever I can, I'm going to read through uh, the chapters. The only thing I'm going to skip tonight is the genealogy that's there uh, for two reasons. One, I'm positive I'll run out of time. Two, we're going to touch a little bit on that next week as well as we dive in. But let me read five Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And by the way, if you think God is being tricky or Moses is lying, what Pharaoh heard was, we're leaving. Because that's exactly what they're saying. We're going outside of Egypt. We're going to worship someone beside you. And pretty much we're not coming back. This is the way you would talk and bring this forward. This is what Pharaoh is hearing is, they're gone. They're no longer under my dominion. They want to go out. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And you know what's interesting? It's true, but tragic, is it not? One, he's contemptuous about the Lord. Who is this God that I should obey him? And then he says something that should break every believer's heart. I don't know the Lord. And the reality is, is he doesn't. That's a true statement. But it's tragic. Then we watch Moses and Aaron get a little wishy-washy. It says, the God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Now, God told him to say that. Let us go, we pray thee. Now it seems like we're begging a little bit. Three days journey into the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And then the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their work. In other words, why are you distracting people from their work? Get get you unto your burdens. And actually, he's not talking to Moses and Aaron. He's talking to the elders who are most likely with Moses and Aaron, representing the people. And he says, Moses and Aaron, you're distracting people from work. Uh, The benefit of being in your 80s is I doubt that they had the 80-year-olds making bricks. And they're like, you guys go make bricks, get back to work. I want you to recognize in three that there's a change of approach. Thus saith the Lord to the God that the Hebrews worship. It's two different ways of approaching it. And chapter th- or verse 3 is the wrong way to say this. Thus saith the Lord is the right way. The God of our, our God, hey, it's our God, not your God. This is our God, this weak God that has us enslaved. He wants us to worship. You might think that um, Moses is lying. Where does he get this pestilence and sword? And I want to remind you, and I'll mention it before, what happened in chapter 4 when you don't obey God? He remembers being near death because 
he had not circumcised one of his sons. So here's how it starts. Moses and Aaron address Pharaoh. Verse 1, they say, God says, let us go. Exclamation point. Pharaoh responds with complete arrogance, basically stating that he is God and does not recognize God. He refuses to accept this demand, and he says it this way, I don't know your God, because he, Pharaoh, thinks he's God. And look, to do so would mean acknowledging God's superiority over him. So I want you to realize Pharaoh is being harsh and hard, but in all fairness, he either has to admit that God is God or holds the fact that he is God. And his answer to Moses and Aaron is, I'm God, and I don't have anything to do with this other God, because you can't be God and capitulate to someone else. So he's saying no, because the second he says you can go, he's making a concession to himself and to all the people out there that he's no longer a God. Now, remember who we're dealing with. Again, it can be many different people. I read one commentator that thinks it's Thutmose III's son. I think it's Thutmose III based on history. Thutmose III was under the thumb of his stepmother for 20 years. He's a brilliant military general. Uh, a lot of the pharaohs were amazing in military conquest. They led their armies. That's why some of them die early. Uh, he was gifted in that area. What he doesn't like is people at home telling him what to do. He's had that. He's been through that for 20 years. And so you can already see the situation for him where he says, wait a second, I'm the, and he is actually, Thutmose III is one of the most uh, decorated general pharaohs in Egypt's history. The guy expanded them further north than ever before. Now, other kings got a broader expanse, but this guy was fighting the best, and he was the best at fighting. And so he says, absolutely not. He would have to humble himself. So he answers in defiant rejection of their request. They now follow up with a much softer plea. Please let us go. That's what verse 3 sounds like. Please let us serve our God. Please let us go, otherwise we'll face punishment and death. And again, there's nothing in God's message that said, if you guys don't leave right away, I'm going to kill you. But Moses is tracing back to Exodus 4, where he has wasted years not obeying God with, I, I think, Eliezer, his second son, because he took his sons and only one son needed to be circumcised. It would most likely be the younger one. And it was a battle. And by the way, he sends his family back. They don't go with him to Egypt. So because uh, they end up getting brought to him by his father-in-law later on. So he's encountered what disobedience looks like, so he's not making it up. He's applying his situation to it, yet subjecting themselves to beg. That's what verse 3 looks like. Well, we said, let us go. It didn't work. Let's beg him. Let's ask him nicely. They possibly thought it would work. Well, if we just, you know, try to word this in a way where it doesn't make Pharaoh feel like we're trying to tell him that he's not God, even though he's not God, it doesn't work, though. Nothing changes Pharaoh's mind. He sends people back to work. I put here something to keep in mind. Stick with the message as God gave it, and don't get caught up in fixing it to be more appealing to the world around us. I mentioned it on Sunday. We have a plague of that. We've always had a plague of this, but currently in our society, we have a plague of gospel alteration to appeal to a different crowd I'm not saying we should be so obnoxious that we distract from the gospel. I'm just saying stick to what God says. Get in trouble for what God says. That's on two sides of the equation. Don't be nastier than God is, but don't be begging when God doesn't. 
because he's very straightforward. And we can apply that principle because we watch here and you can walk away with this and realize something. It doesn't work. Guess what? If they begged Pharaoh to kind of let him go, is that what God wanted? No. God doesn't want to kind of let him go. He wants to rescue and redeem him. You don't kind of redeem someone. You don't kind of rescue somebody. You rescue and you redeem them. And so even if they were successful, they had failed. Apply that to our world and our life. Maybe you'll look successful by tweaking the message, but you still failed miserably with what God's called you to do. So now I, put, I call it the interlude here, five, verse 5 through 14. Pharaoh's response is get back to work. And on top of that, he says this, And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many, which we know that. They've been saying that for a while. And you make them rest from their burdens. You're making them lazy. You're making them relax. And he goes on, And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You'll you'll no more give the people straw to make brick, as heretofore let them go and gather straw for themselves. By the way, it's mud, straw. Straw is a thing that brings the bricks together. They didn't make bricks like we think of them. They're bigger bricks that they would dry in the sun. You need straw to be a, a bonding agent for this. And preferably, you want good straw, not the stubble. So you would want good straw that's harvested because it would be a better to work with and easier. And now Pharaoh's about to say, uh, no more are you going to get good straw. You actually go out and get the junk that's left over and put it in your bricks. And the tail of the bricks or the quota, which they didn't make before, you shall lay upon them. You shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle. Therefore they cry, saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let their more work be laid upon the men that they may labor therein and let them not regard vain words. This is called punishment, right? You let Moses and Aaron come talk for you. You elders were sitting in here. You want to go worship your God. You got time on your hands. I'm going to take that time off your hands. Now, the taskmasters of the people went out and their officers, and they spake to the people saying, thus saith Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go ye, get you straw where you can find it, Yet not of your work, yet not aught of your work shall be diminished. In other words, you will still do the same work. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And I want you to see something. They don't have straw. They were given really harvest straw, correctly harvest. Now they have to go dig in the ground for what's left. So not only do they get less for their labor, they have to go get it. It's not like they're harvesting like, oh, we have to harvest the grain now. No, you get to scrounge in every field and see if you can find leftovers that are going to cut your hand and and basically make it impossible to get to the numbers. And the taskmaster hasted them. They pushed him, rushed him, saying, fulfill your work, your daily task, and when, as when there was straw. And the officers of the children of Israel, which Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and demanded, wherefore have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? Now, I want you to realize something. Pharaoh is saying to them, I'm removing the straw, which you basically have no land to grow and no way of getting. And now you can go scrounging in the fields and hope to pick up some stubble. And then I want you to notice the other thing that happens. You were a foreman, a Hebrew foreman. So there is Egyptian taskmasters that are making sure they get their count of 10 bricks from you from one person. You're over X number of people. And instead of being a brick maker, you have been promoted to be a foreman. This is a position of honor. And guess what you don't make during the day? 
you don't make bricks. So you've been enjoying, if that's a loose way to say it, some supervisor roles, right? You get to get coffee while the other ones are making bricks idea. Now suddenly, people aren't making bricks. Who are they whipping? The foreman, these officers. So what was a good position now becomes a what? Very bad. It becomes a death trap, right? Think about this. There's no way they can make bricks. Who do they whip? You. How many have ever been whipped here? Not by your mom or dad, but like kind of real beaten. Whoever's been hit with a whip? You ever done the towel thing in, in camp? You know, you get them and it hurts, right? If someone's good at that, you're like, hey, don't want to share camp, camp cabin with him. He's got to stop this, you know? Imagine getting whipped and then you know tomorrow, whipped. And then the next day, whipped. And so you're going to see them suddenly feel, uh, what does pain do to you? What does suffering do to you? It'll drive you to make a change. And so what we're going to see, it's going to prompt a new interaction with Pharaoh from Israel, but it's led now not by Moses and Aaron, not by the elders, but now the foreman address Pharaoh. Now, it's interesting to me, Pharaoh is obviously staying close to where the work is taking place. It's not like the foremen are like, hey, I'm catching a Delta flight. I'm hitting down to uh, uh, Thebes and I'm going to be down in the, in the capital and I'll be back, guys, in a couple days after I have a chat with the boss. He's in the Delta region. Number two, what's really interesting is that obviously Pharaoh and these people have had interaction before. When we think foremen, we think, hey, they're, just, they're like a, a sergeant on the roll. But obviously they have some connection with Egypt because they're able or they get over the fear and they go approach Pharaoh. But here's the thing to remember, they're given an audience with Pharaoh. Pharaoh could have said, no, I don't want to talk to you people. So obviously they're important enough in his scheme or his plan that they bring him in. There's some pre-existing connection with him, but we find now a petition to Pharaoh 15 and 16. And I want you to notice when I read this, who they're not asking for help. So then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried unto Pharaoh, saying, Wherefore dealest thou thus with thy servants? There is no straw given unto thy servants. And they say to us, Make brick. And behold, thy servants are beaten. But the fault is in thine own people. Now, <coughs> they have a good enough relationship with Pharaoh that they go to him and say, What's up, man? We've been working for you. We've been doing the job. We don't get straw. You Egyptians are lazy. Kind of. <laughs> but who did they not ask for help? It's very glaring. So there's a battle between Pharaoh who thinks he's God and God who is God and God's chosen people when the first instance of difficulty, and I don't want to minimize this at all because this is awful, but who do they go to? They go to a fake God because they think the fake God can fix their problem. And you have to ask yourself, is that significant? Just so you get the right answer. <laughs> it's massively significant. How many of us go to the fake God? Providentially, and I say that on purpose, they get a negative response from Pharaoh. Actually, it's quite an aggressive one. He says, you're lazy and want to get out of work to worship. Here's an interesting note. They've dug up uh, records from Egypt, right? Not necessarily this time, because there's a lot missing from this time, and they have a hard time pinpointing this time, but ancient I Egyptian history, and they have gone through cycles. The Israelites aren't the only people who are slaves in their nation. There's other people who serve them and are slaves. And 
there was this document, this one commentator was noting, and it was saying that they had a lot of absenteeism from work. So people didn't show up to their duties. So this wasn't prison camp slavery. You function and live, but you had to serve there. And people didn't show up. Guess what the number one reason, or really the only reason someone didn't show up to work? They had to go worship their God. So in Egypt, if you wanted to get out of work, you called the boss and said, um, I got to worship a God. I'll be out for a while. You didn't show up. And the reason given is you're worshiping another God. I, I remember being in, in his middle school. I went to a Christian high school and I remember two guys from high school came to work at the greenhouse. I'll give their names in a matter. Joey and Stacy, they were working. Now, Stacy rode with Joey. So Joey picked up Stacy in Fredericksburg, drove out to the greenhouse. Well, I wouldn't say that they're the hardest workers in the world, but one morning, Joey, on a Saturday, we started at 7, so about 10 minutes before 7, he calls the main office and says he's sick. He won't be at work that day. That's normal. People get sick, right? We don't think anything of it. But then Stacy calls in one to two hours after starting time to say he could not come in due to Joey not being able to give him a ride. The secretary is smart enough to ask Stacy, why didn't you call in at 6.50? Like when you're supposed to call in, your shift starts at seven. And to which, and I'm sure, Stacy, if you're hearing this, I doubt you're working uh, for the president or anything, because this is his answer. He says he already knew Joey was going to be sick in the morning, and so he didn't set his alarm. <laughs> which then let us know that Joey was a liar, and Stacy was the worst friend to have. It's like that one guy that gets you in trouble, like you're getting away with something in school. And then someone's like, hey, we did that. You're like, great, you know, you got us all in trouble. Well, Pharaoh thinks of these requests as Joey and Stacy. These guys are making stuff up. You guys are lazy. It's another fabricated way to get out of work. So when the foremen are petitioning Pharaoh, only asking, now remember, they're not asking to get out of work. What is their request to Pharaoh? Give me straw. And this is, that's all they've asked. They're denied and given a rebuke by Pharaoh. 17 and 18 is, you're idle. You're idle. Therefore, you say, let us go and do sacrifice to the Lord. How many times did he say they were lazy? Twice. You go to your boss and you say, I need a little help with this. I can't quite handle it. And he responds or she responds with, you're lazy. What does that tell you? You're getting no help. Not only that, he doesn't think you need or she doesn't think you need help. They think you should accomplish this on your own. You're, you're idle. You're just lazy. Get back to work and no straw and no reduction in quota. Now, could it get worse getting beaten for not having the quota? Yes. You know how it gets worse? When you petition the person you've now acknowledged, who is the ruler of the land and treated him like the God, you've petitioned the ultimate boss. You've got your audience. And that boss says to you, no. He understands the situation. He knows you're not getting straw. Like they're walking in like, hey, I don't know if you know this, but your guys aren't giving a straw. And he's like, that's because you're lazy. Oh, you knew about it. Oh, I did know about it. And I'm not going to give you straw. Now, this feels even worse, doesn't it? And as they exit his presence, who do they find waiting to hear what has taken place? Who's waiting in the hall, so to speak? Moses and Aaron and they unload on him. Now, I want, you to, I want you to be that foreman. I don't know how many beatings you've taken, but you're not used to getting beat. You have walked into Pharaoh. Now, 
before this, the elders of your land have decided that Moses and Aaron have a good, good thing going. We're going to go because the Almighty says we're going to get free. They're going to ask Pharaoh for help and they're going to ask him to let us go worship our God, the God. And we're excited because the God is thinking and working on our behalf and cares for us. And then they go in and get a big fat no. And the end of the result is I get less straw or no straw. And I get beaten now because we can't meet the quota. And on the way out of the worst no of your life, you see the two guys who convinced your nation that we should ask God to go worship. How do you feel about those guys? And not only that, it's not two guys with an answer. It's two guys like, uh, did it work out? Did, did they give you more straw? They're literally sitting on the sidelines seeing what's going to take place, and they unload. And the officers of the children of Israel did see that they were in evil case. In other words, they recognized we're in trouble. After it was said, ye shall not minish aught from your bricks of your daily task. And they met Moses and Aaron, who stood in the way as they came forth from Pharaoh. And what do they do? And they said unto them, the Lord look upon you and what? In other words, we hope God curses you. Because ye have made our savor to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants to put a sword in their hand to slay us. What do they say to him? You've killed us. You have set us up to be slaughtered. Moses now cannot imagine a worse outcome to this situation. So he turns to who they all should have turned to, and much sooner I might add, and Moses talks with God. Now, this is 22 and 23. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, wherefore hast thou so evil and treated this people? Why is it that thou hast sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to this people. Neither hast thou delivered thy people at what? At all. That's the same as Moses the last time. And I do want to balance this. Um, this seems like a major complaint against God. But one writer notes this bewilderment seems a more obvious interpretation. I don't know what's going on. I am confused, God. Now, one thing that carries over, remember when Moses said, uh, I can't speak and I can't even speak now? Remember that? He's like, well, you've called me to do this. I've never been a good speaker and I don't feel like I'm a good speaker now. Like, you didn't take care of this right away. And I want you to recognize in patience, both in Moses and in the people, they are not on God's timetable but I do want us to be fair to Moses. This is not him rebelling against God. And I want you to see the benefit. He finally is going to God with the problem. This is after they've gotten no's and he and Aaron have hung around with their ear to the door, wondering what's going to happen with the foreman. This is after the nation of Israel neglects to go to God with their problem at all, but instead seeks the God of the Egyptians, Pharaoh, to answer their problems. But he at least finally gets to the right source. But he expresses, and I call the doubts from Moses, why am I doing this? Nothing has gotten better. It's only worse. And you've not done what you said. That's the closing one. But thankfully, we don't have to wait long. And I put for the assurance given Moses, and we're not going to switch it. It's the next one. Um, the background is this. Immediately, God shows and reminds Moses that life is on. And I want you to realize this, God's timetable. This is the biggest lesson you can see in these two chapters is that life is on God's timetable. Then the Lord said unto Moses, and don't miss this next word, now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. Not before, but now. 
And he's doing that on purpose. He's telling Moses, I will work on my timetable because now you're going to see it. Notice that God does not apologize for what's taken place. He goes on, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And by the way, he's flipping the two. With a strong hand, I'm going to make him let them go, and then I'm going to make sure you realize that it's not going to be Pharaoh's kindness. He's going to drive you out of the land. Now, that's going to be important here. Because God is saying to Moses, not only will he let you go, but Pharaoh is going to make you go. What is wrong with the people of Israel right now? God hasn't worked on our timetable. And we're going to actually see in verse 9 that they're completely crushed and their spirit is broken and they are not seeing God work at all. And so there's actually a need, and you see God's providence, for Pharaoh to actually drive them out. In other words, no one has the option to stay in Egypt. Someone can't say, you know what? I kind of like Egypt. I don't want to deal with this Moses guy. He's going to make everyone go. And what you're going to see is it's no decision of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is going to literally be used to let them go with a strong hand of God, and then he's going to be pushing them out, not because he's nice, because he can't stand them and he wants to get rid of them. they got to get out of here. And who is in charge of both of those movements? God is. And it's going to be clear to Moses and to the nation of Israel that the only reason they're rescued and redeemed is God. It's not the speaking ability of Aaron. It's not the good looks of Moses. It's not the power of the people. It's not their complaints. It's not their anger. It's not their ability to overtake Egypt. It is just the fact that God intervened and he's going to get them out of there. God's timetable, though. That word now is basically God implanting in Moses now I'm going to do this. Not when you want, but when I've already planned to do this. Then two through four, he's showing an assurance to Moses. He's showing him his timetable. And then he's going to said, he's going to talk about his character and what it's revealed. If you look at two, and God spake unto Moses and said unto him, what? I am the Lord. Why does he need to remind Moses of that? In contrast to whom? Pharaoh. See, they're confused. They're begging the Pharaoh. Moses started it, and the people after him, the foreman, they hit a horrible problem. They don't go to God who cares. They go to Pharaoh, who they think's in charge. And so he says, I am the Lord. Then verse 3, And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob. They would know those names, right? That's their forefathers. This is important. The nation of Israel never forgets about being father of Abraham. Go to the New Testament. What do the Pharisees say? We're sons of Abraham. Jesus says, you're sons of the devil, which is, you know, typical Jesus response to them. But they go all the way back to Abraham, don't they? So he says, I was their God. And he says, I appeared unto them by the name of God Almighty. But by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them? Now, people get caught up um, and commentators get caught up and spend an inordinate amount of pages um, writing about this is the first time they learned the name of Jehovah or Yahweh. Now, let's go trace our way back. A name to us is just a label, right? You can throw, I'm Kenny, but you could change my name. When I do Spanish class, my name's Ricardo because my middle name's Richard. I answer to anything. I'm, I have six brothers, one sister. Trust me, I respond to any name called. 
And if my mom makes a noise, I assume there's food at the table. So bam, there I am. It doesn't matter who you call. You can call Jennifer and I'm at the dinner table. I mean, it's, you know, that's, so to us, a name, I know it means something, but it doesn't mean something like it did before. When God says they're going to know me by Yahweh, it's not that he's giving a name change and he's not like he's giving them a new name for God because there's a good chance that they already knew the name Yahweh. But the thing that he's saying is, I'm going to reveal my character as Yahweh to you. And people do studies of all God's names and they, they point to different things. And obviously for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he's God Almighty, God in charge, was what they knew about God. And he's saying to Israel that I am going to be known by them. As he reveals his character, he's pointing to something. He's revealing more of himself, of his character to his chosen people, and they're going to know him better. And I put here, what an amazing blessing, though often unappreciated. I hate to pre-preach two weeks from now sermon, but how has God revealed himself to us? And to what depth? The nation of Israel is going to learn about Yahweh. We're reading in the second book of the Bible he's given us, of his word, and how many other pages reveal God to us. There's never been a people in all of history who've had more of God revealed to them than you. We sit with the completed word of God, which by the way, when you read God's word, you know who the Bible is about? It's God. It's not about you. It's actually about him. When you read God's word, you find out about him. Do you know what you need right now for any problem you may have? To know more about him. He is the answer to the question. That's why the Bible is the living word of God. And it, it does answer anything that comes into life. The answer is found there because it reveals us our amazing God and creator. And therefore, we're able to handle what goes on, handle life. Now you look at Israel and they're not even bothering to pray to God, Yahweh, who's going to reveal himself, but instead are willing to seek the, the lower tier level of Pharaoh, right? We're going to go to a not God, actually someone who's against God, and we're going to spurn God, who is everything. And we think to ourselves, what's wrong with Israel? And then I would say, how many people read their Bible? How many people seek his face? We have God revealed to us in a way broader than ever before, and yet we'll leave his character unrevealed, unstudied, because sadly we are uninterested. And that's what Israel was at this moment. Life has overtaken them. And then think about this. When you don't go to God's word, it's because life has overtaken you. And then you're going to say, but Kenny, you don't understand. It's not that I'm busy. It's that I'm burdened and I'm broken down. Okay. Be a slave in Egypt. Make bricks in the hot, hot sun. Not get straw. Get beaten for doing it. Have a guy that wants to basically annihilate you. Problems, by the way, don't forget that he used to like to kill all the males and throw them in the river. We got problems. I get it. We're a vile nation. We have issues. I just want you to see that they did too. That they, I would have crumbled under what they faced. But when life presses down, we're supposed to run to God. We're supposed to run to know more about God because the answer lies there. Um, life overtakes us, and that's what it's done to the Israelites, which we're going to see more in verse 9. 
Now, God continues revealing himself because we see that God's care is revealed. God continues the conversation by saying this, um, and I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel. And remember, does God not hear anything? So when he says he heard something, what does that mean? Again, reminding him of what? Activity. He's acting because God has missed nothing. God forgets nothing. God doesn't hear. Remember, even your prayers, Romans 8, 26. If you're ever wondering if God hears your prayers, it says that, that the Holy Spirit groans and Things undescribable almost. He communicates for you when you fail. If you've ever said, I don't even know how to pray. I just say pray because the promise from Scripture is that what you lack, the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, is going to fulfill. What do you need to do? Pray. Exactly. When someone says to me, I, just, I can't, and I look, I'm, I'm as guilty as the next one or maybe more so. I don't feel like, does prayer really make a difference? Does it, does it matter? I mean, God knows what I think. God knows what's going on. But what did God command us to do? Pray. And then the best promise ever about your prayer is that the Holy Spirit is going to come alongside your prayer and make your prayer whatever, more than you could ever imagine. I think it's the most reassuring verse on prayer that's in Scripture to remind us of that. So we have the responsibility to dive in. God's care. He heard their groaning. He's, he's acting on their behalf. He says, I will relieve the burden. I will bring you out, he says. He says he will free them. I'll keep reading it. Sorry. It goes on. I've heard the groanings of, of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I've remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments and i will take you to me for a people and i will be to you a god and you shall know that i am the lord your god which bringeth you out from from under the burdens of the egyptians and i will bring you unto the land concerning the which i did swear to give it to abraham to isaac and to jacob and i will give it to you for an heritage i am the lord and i want to go back and go through those he will leave the burden to bring you out he will free them rid you out, he'll rid, rid you out of their bondage. In other words, I want to set you free. And then don't miss this. I will redeem you in verse 6. Added to his amazing rescue and freeing is the promise of relationship. The word there ties to the concept of a kinsman redeemer. It is the kinsman redeemer who acts on the behalf of family. Who does the kinsman redeemer take care of? His people. And God is telling Moses to tell Israel, I am going to act on behalf of my children. What did he call them in the earlier chapters, when it was three or four, that they were his firstborn? That these are my kids, so to speak, using our vernacular. And he says, I am going to rescue my family. And then a really critical thing, and all of us like to own a house, right? Own some land. Like trace back in culture and your whole society is built on agriculture. Everything's about owning land. And he says, he will give them land, a possession, a place, a heritage. And then I put as an action step, can we rest or maybe better? Do we rest? Do we rest upon the same assurances given to Moses? Do you rest on the God who hears you, who relieves your burdens, frees you, and most importantly, redeems you? Not in this above elitist way, but he says, I redeem you as your father. I redeem you as your, my family. This is what I do. Now, 
Moses is assured and confident, and I am assured that I am out of time now, and so I'm going to actually discipline myself to stop and finish what I'm doing later. So we're going to move to the second half of this next week. I want to set it up, though. Moses talks with Israel, and it doesn't go well. So this will be my closing remarks uh, for tonight, and then we'll come back to this. But I want to read verse 9. Moses is now assured and confident, and he turns back to the people of Israel. What happened the last time he talked to the elders in Israel? 431. What happened? Believed. They bowed down. They worshiped. I want you to read in verse 9, and I would almost sketch over this, this is life. This is, this is reality. This is pressures that you can relate to, right? And Moses spake so unto the children of Israel. Moses said, look, God said to me, I will free you. I will, I've heard you. I care. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to free you. I'm going to redeem you. You're my people. And they hearkened not unto Moses. And then the scripture is great and gives us a reason for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. And the reason I like to write the word reality right there by that verse is when we are struggling to hear God, it's oftentimes the circumstances in which we are buried. And what I love about scripture is it doesn't sugarcoat, it doesn't lie, it doesn't pretend, it is straightforward and honest. And it tells us that Israel is so covered that they can't listen to God. Now, if there was a period, which there is, but it didn't end, if, if Exodus ended there, it would be God turning his back on people who have said they don't want to listen to him. What happens to the rest of Exodus? What, what does Exodus happen? What happens to the nation of Israel? They leave, right? But right here, they don't listen to God anymore. Does God change his mind about what he's doing? And actually, we'll get into that next week because Moses is deflated after this and he's crushed and God says, go do the job I gave you to do. Their disloyalty, their mistrust of God never changed God's covenant relationship with them. God didn't change his mind. And I think there's an assurance there uh, when you look at our own lives. And I know different people facing different things at different times in your life. But when the weight of this world, the reality is giving anguish of spirit and cruel bondage, one promise that I think is critical to hang on to is that God never forsakes you. God never gives up on you. And God doesn't pettily respond and say, I'm going to punish you now because you don't have enough trust in me. It's we're watching a God who doesn't change his mind just on his timetable move forward. No, he didn't respond and didn't act right after they all believed and said it's great, but he's going to act after they're crushed and say, that guy is a liar. He's not coming through. I don't trust him. And the thing is, I want you to walk away, and we'll finish this out and dive into the plagues next week a little bit, but recognize this. The story of Exodus didn't end there. He actually just moves directly forward, and when Moses approaches him, God actually, and we'll talk about it next week, he actually ramps up the command to Moses. He told Moses to talk to Pharaoh, and now Moses is going to say, they don't even listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And God actually doesn't tell him to talk to Pharaoh again. He says, in front of Israel and in front of Pharaoh, 
you now need to get my people out of Israel. I mean, out of Israel, out of Egypt. He's going to tell them now, he's going to ramp up the work that Moses made. What happened? I thought I was just talking. Now suddenly I'm in charge of getting these people out of here. God's letting him know, I'm moving. It's happening now. 